Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Griffin Perry, co-founder of Meter, and also a second-time founder who sold his first company, a back-end-as-a-service company called GameSpark, to AWS. He saw firsthand some of the challenges of doing usage-based pricing there, and his experience at AWS is what led him and his co-founder to start Meter, an intelligent metering and pricing engine for SaaS businesses. Meter recently raised $14 million in Series A from Notion Capital, Insight Partners, Union Square Ventures, and Kindred Capital, who were all previous backers from its $17.5 million seed round the year before. In today's episode, we'll delve more into the world of usage-based pricing, why it makes sense to do this now, and who should be looking at it. And I'm also keen to talk about how they built Meter using customers as their design partners and what's the best way to do this and lessons learned from doing this. So welcome, Griffin. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great. So let's start with Meter. I've seen this quote from, I think, I don't know if it was from you or from John, which says that in 2020, 34% of software companies used usage-based pricing, but today that's almost 61%. And to be honest, I'm a bit surprised by this. I thought both vendors and customers wanted predictability in their monthly revenues and costs. So what is making this model popular now? That would have been both of us. We were, And we would have been quoting some research by OpenView Partners who are a leading PC in this space. I actually think that, I think they're projecting that uh, the percentage is above 80% by the end of 2023. So the, the wow. deployment of usage-based pricing is very widespread in software. I guess the key thing to remember is that it's we're not talking necessarily about pure usage-based pricing that you might associate with, or just about um, that, that you might associate with the likes of AWS or Snowflake. What's and there is definitely that stuff, but what's also driving a lot of it is an evolution of more traditional subscription um, pricing where vendors are introducing usage-based elements to it. So it still looks quite a lot like subscription, mm. but there are usage-based elements to it, which changes the way you need to operate as a business. And so we, we tend to refer that to that as subscription 2.0 or hybrid pricing, but it's probably the majority of the pricing which sort of makes up that 80% Figure. And, there, and there, there are lots of reasons for it, which we can delve into, but it's very widespread. Can you give me an example of subscription 1.0 and subscription 2.0? What do you mean by that? Subscription 1.0 would be, uh, to, to set this in a little bit more context, think about this as the third era of software pricing. So if in the first, year, the first era, people sold licenses to software, 
in the second era, people started allowing, led by the innovators like Salesforce, people um, sold subscriptions or sold access to software. And then in this third era, you're seeing the overlaying of usage-based elements. And to, to give you an example, like a subscription 1.0, uh, you subscribe to a tier. Let's say you subscribe uh, for a number of seats in a particular feature tier, and you can use as much as you like. So there's no distinction between your heavy users and your light users. In a um, subscription 2.0 situation, you introduce usage allowances and overages. So it looks very similar. You're still subscribing um, for a number of seats in a feature tier, but you have an allowance of usage. And when you reach that limit, you're either going to have to upgrade to a higher tier or pay overages. So that's a good example of subscription 2.0. I remember when Salesforce and the heady days of when SaaS was like the big thing. And it was the promise of usage-based pricing. It was all about you pay for what you use. And also the second part is if you're not using it, you just stop the subscription and you're done. And so... I feel like pricing in general is such a complicated subject. You have all these different tiers. And like you said, within the tiers, you might be pricing by seats and then the number of whatever, some other vectors, messages used or emails sent. It's so complicated. Doesn't usage-based pricing become even more complex? I'm trying to really understand what would motivate companies, vendors, or the customers to want to do this. So remember that Pricing yeah, it mediates value exchange between customers and and vendors. And so when people are, are innovating around pricing, they're just trying to improve that value exchange and the perceptions of it on both sides. So in terms of why people are deploying techniques like this, one of the key reasons, and I'm going to use a slightly negative term, but then describe it in a slightly more positive way. What are the key reasons to do it is price um, discrimination. So if you're an economist, it allows you to charge some users more than others based on their usage. But the reason this isn't a negative in the eyes of the consumer is that if you attach your pricing to the right usage vector, those customers who are using the most feel like they're getting the most value and are happy to pay you a little bit more. So that's a, a big driver of it. There are other drivers. It's It allows for low cost expansion. So you don't have to expend a lot of sales and marketing effort to get more money from a customer if they're just paying you more because they use it. That helps a lot. It also helps you manage your margins because if you're associating sort of additional charges with usage that drives variable cost for you, it allows you more control of your margin. And it also really helps with churn resiliency. Hmm. So in in difficult times, if the customer is rethinking how much of your product they want to use, if you have some usage-based elements, they can just decide to use less to pay less rather than churn away or give up on capacity. It's quite appealing, and particularly in, in tough times. And so you tend to get quite a lot of contraction and revenue quite quickly, but you tend to have higher logo resiliency, and then you bounce back much more quickly when when things improve. So there there are a bunch of reasons why people are doing it. It's just becoming the way people do things. Yeah, I can understand, especially as you say, when the economic environment is tougher, this idea of paying for exactly what you use and being able to control that at a very granular level seems very appealing from the customer side. 
how hard is it for a SaaS company to adopt metering of their solution? Is it a lot of work to do it, especially companies that are established? Is every SaaS company a fit for metering? I, I certainly wouldn't say that every SaaS company is a good fit for usage. The numbers suggest that the majority are, but what you're looking for is you, you need to be able to identify a usage vector that the end customer understands and associates with value. If you can do that, you're in a good position to deploy usage-based pricing because the user will go, I'm using more of it and therefore I'm getting more value. So therefore I'm happy to pay you more. So that's a fundamental thing. You have some businesses like seat-based businesses where you don't have that association. There isn't a good usage vector apart from the number of seats. And in that situation, it's difficult to overlay usage-based. But, but there are lots of other situations where you can have a seat-based model, but usage associated with it, and then more usage is associated with more value for that particular seat, and you're, and you're happy to pay. Yeah, that's the key thing you've um, you've got to look for. But it's uh, it, the currency is higher than you might expect, and that's why it, so much of it's happening. It's your other question, because you asked her whether it was difficult. This is a key point of view at Meta that we have is that actually pricing generally is pretty difficult and yes. that most um, companies aren't very good at it. And that means that they're not growing as fast as they should do and they're leaving money on the table. So pricing is a really key lever that helps deliver bottom line results that is um, not used as well as it should do typically. The problem with pricing, and this is where this where we come back to your question is, being good at pricing isn't about doing a one-off pricing strategy project or a series of pricing strategy projects or even hiring a head of pricing strategy. All those things are important, but being good at pricing really requires an operational capability. Hmm. You need to be able to change prices easily. You need to always be able to bill painlessly regardless of what pricing changes you've made. You need to be able to distribute information about usage and spend throughout your organization because it's like lifeblood like loads of teams around your company will need that information and you need to be able to route decisions about pricing in data mm -hmm. and that's all an operational capability that's why we founded meter meter provides pricing infrastructure that allows you to do all those things that's why we call it a pricing operations platform and I think it was always the case that you needed to do those things, but this move towards more usage-based pricing strategies is really throwing it into sharp relief that you need to have these operational capabilities, and this is where we come in. I do agree. There is an opera operationalizing element of it. It's not a simple thing to do pricing, and there's so many variables to it, and at least in the companies that I have been at, it's been very ad hoc. It's yeah. because our competitors do X, Y, Z, or it's because we've always done X, Y, Z, or it's like a whole consultative project where you get some pricing expert to come in and then you do it one off and then things change and then your yeah. pricing isn't relevant, but you keep going with it because that's what you have. So I understand the operational element to it. Is this uh, relevant for any stage of company? I mean, my guidance, have, I, I live in the world of pricing, is that in your, in earlier stages, you need to be focusing on creating a product that works and setting some basic pricing that works. So yeah, it's, it's great to have an operational capability that Meta can provide, but at that stage, it's not vital. I mean, focus on the right. things that really matter. Yeah. Um, it's when you start scaling the business 
that you really need to start developing this this muscle because because I love the way you describe it that you describe pricing as ad hoc and infrequent really pricing needs to be continuous it's a rhythm it's you need to try something see the results try a variation see what that does innovate around pricing and continue if you talk to a good pricing strategist they'll always say pricing is not one and done yeah pricing is iterative and continuous so it's really you can experiment in the initial stages of growth just to, to work out where to start but then when you, once you've got to start you need to start falling into this sort of cycle of continuous improvement and that's when you need this operational capability so it's really when you're going from you know a handful of customers to hundreds mm. it's when you've got one product to several it's when you're going from one geo to more geos um, a really good moment to pay attention to this is when you start employing direct sales people that want to do custom pricing deals because mm. that generates a lot of operational pain because the, the sales guy will go if only we could price like this we would win this deal or we'd expand this account and straight away you go into an operational conversation where the engineering goes we can't or we couldn't do that without you know, consuming a lot of resource which is needed elsewhere and, and, and that's when you start knowing that you've got this operational drag and you need to address it. So one other question on how your usage-based pricing interacts with systems like CPQ, configured price quote. So, okay, a, ba a background point, which is like we always built Meta so that it fills a gap in customers' stacks. So we, particularly because we're focused on scale-ups and above, we assume that the customer is committed to existing quote cash tooling. So they're committed to their sales CRM on one side and their finance stack on the other. So let's say Salesforce and NetSuite. Fundamental of what Meta does is a piece of data infrastructure. So it pulls in usage data and it pulls in pricing and account data wherever it sits and then it processes them. And then what it spits out is spend amounts, like what should go on an invoice and usage summaries, which can also go on an invoice. And that's what gets spread around all over the organization. So the reason that CPQs are relevant is that's often where pricing sits. Right. So we in integrate with the CPQ to pull the pricing into the platform to combine with the usage data. So oh. they, they are critical. You know, our, the way our integrations work is a key part of what makes us appealing to our customers. You can just snap meter into what you're currently using and they, they work as they should. The, the other angle, though, is in the future, I think the CPQ systems will also be customers of the data that we deliver because in a cpq you're configuring pricing for an individual customer and you're probably customizing that pricing and the account manager or the deal desk who are considering that pricing will probably like some guidance about whether this pricing will work well or badly and if you remember i talked about the pricing intelligence suite the, the advanced analytics that would be a, a great place to deliver those insights. So I'm, I'm sure it'll be a consumer system as well as a, a source of pricing. Got it. But I think the key is where meter sits is in the confluence of usage and pricing. So whatever system holds your pricing, plus whatever system has your usage data, meter takes both of those to figure out what the billing should be for the different customers. That's exactly right. And very well put. I wish okay. I'd said that as clearly myself. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Do you help people with their pricing strategies in addition to providing software? Or 
are you more about providing the software and it can be mapped to different pricing strategies? Uh, overwhelmingly the second. Like we provide a platform which allows you to change pricing easily and always bill painlessly, et cetera. Um, that said, two comments. So obviously we engage with lots of people who, who aren't quite sure how they want to price yet. Yeah, and so we have some leading pricing strategists on staff and occasionally we will uh, provide them with a bit of help like particularly if it activates a big account for us like somebody if somebody's going i really want to uh, adopt your platform i just don't quite know what my pricing should be so sometimes we can activate them with a small consulting project but it's really not our business so we, we try not to do too much of it so that's one comment the other comment is about where we'll go in the future because we onboard a lot of really interesting data at Meta. And we've had data scientists on staff from literally day one. And there's lots of really interesting things that we can do with that data to guide people towards the right pricing. So we, we call it pricing intelligence. Mm. And there, that will be a really significant part of our future starting from early next year, where we introduce these advanced analytics products into the market. So we, we, we can help you with the human at the beginning and we can start helping you with the machine um, from early next year. One other question in pricing before we move to the second part. Could you share some of the most common mistakes that SaaS companies make when it comes to pricing or any other advice related to pricing for founders who are listening and are thinking about their own pricing? I can... The way to talk about this conversation is talk about waves of pain that customers have. Okay. So I don't like talking about it as mistakes because I think pricing is iterative. So I think people should be trying a lot of different stuff. Yeah. But the pain that, that I see coming from um, from pricing is it always almost always starts with billing. It's like I, we really can't bill. It takes a huge amount of time and effort. But the, the bigger issue, sort of the hidden issue is the error rate is if there's lots of errors in billing, that really undermines customer trust and probably results in significant revenue leakage. I mean, you are not billing for stuff you should be, and therefore you're not making as much money. And like in our experience with some leading brands, that number is really quite large. So you definitely get billing. So the, the, that's the pain. And then when people solve that, they then start thinking, we need to democratize the data that sits in the billing system to be available elsewhere in the business. So this is a mistake because people overlook it, but you can fix it if you're using the right technology. For example, the sales team, they want to know how much the customers are using and how much they're spending. And they really want some automated alerts about changes in patterns because that helps them time the conversations with those people. Now that information often sits in, in, a, in a siloed fashion in the billing system and you really need to get it out and give it to them and for it to be near real time so they can see the running total of the bill at any particular time. Yeah, that would be a classic mistake would be to overlook that requirement. Mm. And then I'll, I'll throw one more in. Is A mistake is to underestimate how often you might want to change prices. So this is the, the one and done thing. And so you're, and there's two types of error. So one is they underestimate the appetite from sales to do custom pricing and how impactful it can be. And secondly, people underestimate just the amount you should be iterating pricing as part of that continuous improvement process. They think that they can do it once and then do another pricing project in 18 months. That's really good. Um, I'm going to ask one other follow-on question. 
there are probably a lot of first-time founders pricing their initial products. You not only help companies with pricing, but you yourself had to figure out what your pricing should be for your product. For example, you mentioned value driver. Understand what your value driver is first. So are there three or four things that you could go through as steps to figure out the right pricing? Um, Yes. And there are lots of really good pricing strategies that can help as well and lots of good resources online. So this isn't inaccessible, but you, you can get hold of it. The key, one of the key things is you have to look at it from the customer's, the end customer's point of view. And whatever you're pricing on needs to be, it needs to be relatively simple so that they understand it yep. and quite easy for them to predict. You, you actually mentioned predictability Early, earlier on and there's a big conversation to have about that because there's various mitigations that you can use but the key thing is that people need to be able to go right in this scenario how much would I expect to be using like in this scenario where I'm making this much money how much of this tool would I expect to be using and there wants you really want a link between the success of the business and how much you'd be paying so yeah so simplicity and predictability is a brilliant place to start um, and, I, and I would always look at the drivers of your variable costs as well. I know that doesn't apply to all software companies, mm-hmm. but to a growing proportion of them, it does. And there will be things that generate cost for you as a vendor. And if you can associate pricing with that, it just means you can control your margins better. Got it. I love that. Okay. Excellent. And you mentioned some really good resources for pricing. Could you mention a few and I'll link it in our podcast notes? I would certainly start with the meta blog. There's a bunch of stuff in there. I think okay. there is an ultimate usage-based pricing reading list. So you start there. Okay. So that's meta.com. And actually, I'm just going to say that because all the other reading and other sources are included in that particular blog. So we'll make sure you've got access to that one. Perfect. Okay, let's move on to the second part. When I was doing research on Meter to prepare for this podcast, I came across this concept of design partners that you used to build your product. And I'm really curious about the effectiveness of building it this way and would like to dig deeper in that. So you knew what the pain points were based on your previous startup when you worked at when you were at AWS and the company you sold. So you understood the challenges of usage-based pricing. So why did you feel the need to build the initial MVP with prospects or customers or design partners? Why didn't you just go ahead and build it based on your own experience? I, I never thought for a second that we shouldn't by the way maybe it's a humility point yes we had two strong data points which was our own experience at GameSparks and then our experience at AWS but I still didn't want to presume that they were typical by way of explanation I'm functionally I'm a product person if I'm anything I used to be a product leader in corporate life before I started startups so I tend to have that pattern is that I tend to start with the customer and really try and understand what they need before deciding how best to deliver value to them. So it was just a muscle that yeah. I or we already had. We just exercised it. The way the way we did things is, I, I would say that our experience at GameSparks and then our experience at AWS allowed us to build hypotheses. And before we wrote a line of code, we probably did 50 or 60 discovery conversations with various roles at various types, various software companies at various stages, just to really zero in on who is the ICP, who are the users, what are their pain points, what's the priority. So we did a lot of talking and a lot of listening, rather, before we even started building. And I, and I definitely think it's, like, it's definitely worth it. Like yeah. it's much cheaper to listen 
than it is to build and then iterate when you've worked out you've built not quite the right thing. And and I guess that's the thing is like we, we if we could have just never talked to anybody and built something, and it might have been roughly right, but it makes a big difference to be just that little bit closer to the target. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was well worth it. I read somewhere that you should at least talk to 30 people before you decide to put a line of code. You talked to 60, so that's really good. How did you collect and synthesize the data? Did you do it using spreadsheets? What was your way of honing in on what you should build based on 60 interviews? That's a lot of talking and listening. It was pretty messy. We had the advantage that it was early days, so there weren't very many people in the room. Yeah. Um, when I say in the room, we've always been a remote business and we actually launched in the middle of lockdown. So like, there was no possibility of actually being together physically in person, but you use virtual equivalents. We would write things down in Google Docs. We'd write things down in spreadsheets. We would sketch things out on mirror boards. We would spend hours and hours talking. We would mock up decks. We would use that as a stimulus in our next conversation the way to think about it is like in a physical environment you would have walked into it looks a bit like a war room there's stuff yeah. all over the place there's post-it notes all over the walls there's sketches but you, you just embrace the messiness of the process and then you begin to develop the outlines of hypotheses and then you can yeah. be more polished about how you testing them but yeah it was messy but I love that bit but that's the most fun bit of the journey for me true and how did you decide who to select as your initial design partners. So you talked to 60 of them. Was it based on their time availability, the most pain they felt? What was the criteria? There is an honest truth to this is that the people who are prepared to work with you. But the flip side of that is they're prepared to work with you because they feel acute pain. So you end up selecting the people to work with who are the ones who would benefit most from what you're delivering to them. And that's what we were thinking. Like we didn't want to be working with people who were, meh, this is a nice sideline. I quite like you. Why don't we work together? We wanted to work with people who went, yes, this is an existential problem for us. It's holding us back. We know you guys understand the problem space from your experiences in your startup and AWS. Let's work together to work out what the best solution would be. And we were able, there was a bit of luck involved because you have to cross paths with the right people at the right time. But we were, we were lucky and we recruited five or so design partners like that. And then we really deliberately only worked with them for quite a long period because the, the temptation was always to be, right, let's, let's launch our website and start marketing and start trying to sell to lots of other customers. But I think it's much more important that you really get that initial five, not just okay, but really happy and loving what you've done and raving about the impact of it. And so we were pretty patient. We were able to be because we, it was fundraising conditions were quite favorable. We could raise quite a lot of money, which gave us the benefit of time. But we did. We were very patient. Let's make sure that we're super serving this initial group, getting them really happy, and then we'll move on to sell yeah. it to others. And the five that you chose, were they all of the same use case? Because obviously there's different use cases that probably you built into your product. So did you choose the five? that were all in the same use case or different use cases? And did you have any agreement in place in terms of what was expected from your customers or how you would work with your customers? I would say that they were all quite close. So there was a cluster, but there was also deliberately coverage. So it's, we want these design partners to be slightly different because we will learn as we work with them where we can add most value. And then we can start trying to acquire more people who look like them. 
In terms of the agreement with them, they're all taking quite a big risk because yeah. we had funding and some experience. So we, there was quite a good chance that we would deliver something, but there was still risk. But yeah, we were pretty clear what we were intending to do for them. Yeah. And we held ourselves to it. And where we fell short, we would work really hard to catch up. And I think they really appreciated that. They, they were like, these guys are using us as design partners, but they're absolutely, we are committing quite a lot of our own time to yeah. this project and they're responding in the right way. So we, we were lucky. We, we had the right design partners and we worked well with them, but you do have to put quite a lot of effort in. Is five the right number looking back at your process? Would you take uh, more? Would you recommend less? I quite like five. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't have wanted more. Okay. And I would have worried about having fewer because of the coverage point. I'm happy with where we went, where, where we ended up. And what was the cadence? How did you structure the process now with these five partners? You definitely want to create regular cadence and rhythm. Yeah. That's the thing. So like exactly how often it needs to be is customer dependent. But you need to create like a, there needs to be a key working group and there needs to be a cadence so that you're always talking to them. One of the things that we discovered is that who needed to be in the working group on the other side and not on the customer side, mm -hmm. because you know, going back to the start of our conversation, our customers are laying in pricing infrastructure, this sort of operational muscle, and it's associated with quite a lot of change in their business. Right. So they're changing business processes that affect multiple teams. And so that was a key learning that we were like, okay, you can't just work with the finance people and some engineers. You need to involve X, Y, and Z as well. And you need to make sure that there is leadership on their side in this area and also in this area. So there was yeah. quite a learning as we went, which is super useful to us. But to go back to your question, the key thing to start is to get a group into the room, meet them regularly, listen intently work out where you're blocked, make changes. So you have to develop a lot of trust with the customer. I think that's super important. Mm. You said a very important thing, so I want to make sure I get that right. In, in any software sale, there's the user of your product, but there's the economic buyer. And yeah. in your case, maybe there are even other people that are involved. So in that working group, do you recommend it's the user and the economic buyer just a user or a combination, maybe at different cadences? Like, how did you manage that process? What you'll find is that the buyer tends to drift away from those meetings because they, they don't really care about yeah. the details of implementation. They just want the impact. Yeah. So I, you don't want to force them back in, particularly if they're senior. So I'm simplifying. Your working group really should be focusing on users, I think but you should be maintaining regular contact with your buyers oriented around the impact that they are looking for and what they will or are paying for. Yeah. So yeah, you just got to be a little bit acute with it. And then, and then obviously it really helps because by understanding those different roles, you can market effectively, you can right. manage projects effectively. Like learning the roles is a key part of the design process. You talked about paying for it. Were these five design partners paying during the process how did you structure it so that if you built it successfully you would actually get revenue out of it so the, the way we did it which i wouldn't i don't think was necessarily right but just sharing um, to share is that all the engagements were 
paid. So we, um, the, the customers committed to buying a service from us, buying a, a product from us, but they didn't start paying until that product was um, basically available and being used in production. So, but it was, I think it's really important with design partners that they do commit to a certain level of spend because I think psychologically right. it, it changes the way they think about it. What we've decided pretty quickly is that that left us with a long period where we were working really hard and not being paid. So this is the second wave of customers. The first ones we onboarded when we started going to market, we did get them to start paying earlier. So it's when the product, which is now proven to an extent because it's being yeah. used by the design partners, is, is being implemented, our customers start paying for it then. Yeah. I'm not sure, looking back, I'm not, it's quite a big ask to ask your initial design partners to pay you for something that you're building. Correct, which yeah. They're already taking quite a significant risk. So right. I think maybe maybe the way that we did it is actually the was, was the right way. It's you're committed to paying for this product when it's in production and proving itself. Until then, we're working at our risk. I think that probably was the right thing to do. Yeah. But I also think it was the right thing to move on from that fairly quickly. Yeah. And when you say you're committed when it's in production, is it when it's the product is delivered to you and you start using it or when it's delivered to you and you start seeing value? In our case, it was mostly focused on using rather than value. But I really like the question. Yeah. So when we yeah, we're now into our rhythms in that early product market fit where we're sort of selling regularly is it's not the goal is not to get them live. The goal should be to get them live and having the impact that they hoped for. That's yeah. when implementation finishes. Right. Um, and so you have to punch through the wall. And then, but then you've got a happy customer. Yeah. There's obviously a, we can expand that customer over time. And I think it's a big mistake to, to stop and go, you're live, and then go off to the next thing. And then you find that the customer isn't actually using you or getting, yeah. if they are using, then you find that they're not getting value or they're frustrated with it. So yeah. you, yes, that's definitely something we focus a lot on now as part of the normal rhythms of our business. In terms of the initial stages of capturing feedback, prioritizing what to build, if you got different requirements from your five different partners, how the, do you decide? This is one of the main reasons not to have too many design partners. Yes. Because it's difficult to deal with this. We, we all our customers knew there were other design partners. And so from the very beginning, we were able to speak to them as product organizations should, which is to say, look, we've got a roadmap, we've got competing priorities, we're listening to you. If we make a promise, we really mean it. But the flip side of that is don't expect us to make promises freely because we need to think of our responsibilities to all our customers and not just you. Yeah, we basically ran that playbook from the very beginning and we were relatively transparent with our customers. Um, I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, you engender trust by behaving that way. Occasionally, you get some tricky spots where you've got two customers or more who all want something important in roughly the time, a different time frame, and those things are different. And you just have to manage your way through them, and which yeah. we did. But yeah, we have the same basic disciplines now, just on a bigger scale. Yeah. So this is our roadmap. This is what we're committing to. But we make commitments rarely. And when we do make them, we mean them. Wow, that's a really good takeaway, even at that very early iterative stage where you're just building an MVP, you had a very disciplined approach to your roadmap and committing to what you were building and what you were not and communicating and being very transparent with all the design partners. That's a really good learning because I know we do this when we're 
a company at scale, but that initial one, we always hear do things that don't scale and iterate quickly and break things and all these kind of startup language. So it's interesting that you had so much discipline, even in that iteration phase. There's a couple of things to add here. It's important as context to remember that what we do is critical infrastructure for the mm -hmm. customer. In the first iteration, at least, this is seen as billing infrastructure. It touches dollars. You have to build relationships of trust with your customers. So we were definitely over-indexing towards that because of the type of product. The other, the other thing to say is, look, the reality of the situation is like, we probably took risks through this period. We probably you know, said that we would do things before we were absolutely confident that we could because the reality is you're in a very early stage business and you're, you, you need to yeah. play fast and lose sometimes. But in the grand scheme of things, compared to most, we were really quite disciplined because we thought we saw it as the best way to build and maintain trust and make progress most quickly avoid trash. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. One last question. Is there anything else you would give as advice based on your experience for companies, startups that are planning to do what you did, which is build their initial product with design partners? Yes, I would say it links back to where you started. You need to choose your design partners or select them with care because you're going to end up orientating an awful lot of effort to make them happy. So make sure that you're roughly in the right area. And that goes back to the discovery conversations. That's why you should have 50 or hundred discovery conversations because you need to be pretty confident that you're building this type of product for this type of customer. And then you recruit design partners from that group. If you haven't done the work, you might end up with design partners who are too different from each other or for whom you're building a product that doesn't work for the big market elsewhere. So yes, d discovery and the selection, and then focus on that group and super serve them. I love it. I have come to the end of the formal part of the podcast, but we still okay. have the fun rapid fire round where I okay. ask you fun things like, what's your favorite book? What, what book have you read that made an impact on you? It could be business oriented or a fun book, but something that you cherish. If, if someone asks me a question, I generally try to give the truthful answer. So I would say that the my, fav, my genuinely favorite book is The Count of Monte Cristo, okay. which uh, is a huge book but still feels incredibly contemporary and exciting and interesting. I love that book. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, if you're looking for a business book, and I do read a lot of business books, I, I read quite widely. Picking one, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, if you've ever read that. Yes, I just it's, read it over the summer. That, that, that was quite influential over me. It's, it's about negotiation strategy yes. and it's very interesting. He's an ex-FBI hostage negotiator. Yeah. And in terms of this design part, design thing, design partner way of building product, any book that that you would recommend? Ooh, this, this is less. This isn't specifically about design partners, but more generally about good product, <laughs> functional product behaviors. We we have a little bibliography in the company where we say that these are key books that are you know, no one has to read them, but they're always good to read. Gives you sort of a, a good background understanding. Inspired by Marty Kagan is a, is a good one. Okay. It's a nice summary of product management best practice on the West Coast. 
and it, it's very accessible. It's easy to read. It talks about the various different roles that you have internally. What and is it does by Marty Kagan. Inspired is the name of the book. Marty Kagan, spelled C-A-G-A-N, is the author. Okay. So that's definitely a good one. And then one that go, drives a little deeper and is a little drier, but I think is a better, more useful read, is it's called Escaping the Build Trap okay. by um, Melissa Perry, P-E-R-I. Okay. And that's really interesting about the product and the process, the discovery processes you, you should use to basically work out what you should build before you actually start building it. And my second question is productivity hack or productivity tool. What keeps you productive? A hack, a tip, or a tool? I'm not sure. Uh, this might be cheating slightly, but I'll share a piece of advice that like, an old boss and a friend gave me about 20, 25 years ago, which I, I still think about almost every day. It's, if I've got a list of things to do, I always have a list of things to do. The things I prioritize are the items that enable others to get on with things. So I prioritize unblocking other people. And because if you, so when I think about productivity, it's not my personal productivity that matters, but the productivity of the broader team that I'm working with. And so the most important thing I can do is unblock other people so they can get cracking on things. And um, I do find that a really useful hack. Yep. Okay. And your favorite European city? Very easy question with an emphatic answer, Milan. Why Milan? Because I used to live there and it was one of the happiest times of my life. I lived there about 10, 12 years ago. Our kids were little. We oh. were there. It's actually the early years of GameSparks. I actually founded GameSparks from a study in Milan, but it was wonderful. Like we, we, all the kids were at school age and they went to a school with, and all their friends were Italian. And so we were special and interesting because we were mother tongue English speakers. Yeah. And then, so we were drawn into sort of society and we had a great, social life and I love Italy anyway so that was yeah that's my special place in Europe. Oh, lovely and a favorite quote it, it can be your I, quote it could be someone your mother's quote or some famous person's any quote that you think about or you live by uh yes I can think of one so I guess the background of this is that I think that entrepreneurship is involves a lot of grit and resilience that's actually one of the key things about it it's, unfortunately it doesn't just involve coming up with a great idea and then being super successful the day after it's a messy process where you've got to learn every day adapt keep going maintaining energy levels and positivity and candy attitude is important there's a samuel beckett quote which is ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better and I love that quote. I love it. I think we will mm. stop at that very inspiring quote, which I will put also in the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this cool. lovely Monday morning on this podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. It was nice to meet you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review of the show stay live. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep working.